Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming it at novices and strugglers, those who have tried to read the Bible before, but haven't done so well. So uh, it's a project that helps people that with uh, biblical literacy and uh, people that have had a hard time getting into the Bible before. We have groups uh, online through Zoom, if you're interested, and uh, you can shoot me an email about that. Otherwise, more information is available about the book at thoroughlyequipped.org. With the radio show, we're in the book of Revelation, a challenging book and a great book, understandable and applicable, especially if you get a little bit of help from someone like me. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we started into Revelation 20 and covered the three uh, views of the millennium. We talked about uh, the three views of the timing of the uh, great seven-year tribulation, if that's going to be a literal period of time. And we talked about the rapture. That show had tons of detail in it, fascinating topic, uh, a lot of debate, a lot of detail. And you can catch that as all the other shows we've had on Spotify under the Word Diet. This week, we're going to wrap up Revelation 20. And the main topic here is the judgment of non-Christians, and in particular, the topic of hell. Lord, there's a lot in today's show. Give me a clear mind, a clear tongue. Give people ears to hear what needs to be said. And on this topic of hell, Lord, there's a lot of things here that can scare us or fascinate us that are off topic. And I pray that we would stay focused on the things that matter, your grace, your mercy, your offering uh, of, of love and salvation for us, for those who accept the gift. And we pray that today's message would inform us and help us uh, evangelize others, to tell others about your justice and your love, your greatness, your sovereignty, and your offer to have eternal life a great with a great and good God. Thank you so much for all you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 20 this week, the second of our two weeks on this uh, great chapter, important chapter, and complicated. Uh, We talked at great length uh, through verse 9, but we didn't finish our business, so we're going to back up to verses 4 through 6 and start there. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So a few more references to the millennium. Again, we talked about that last week and uh, would point you back to that show on Spotify under the Word Diet if you want to hear what I had to say on that amazing topic. Uh, But in verses four through six, I want to divide it up into the agents that are involved 
particularly in verse 4, and then the blessings and opportunities that are, that are available for these saints, those who are in the first resurrection, most of that is in verse 6. Verse 4, there are three groups mentioned, those who have been given authority to judge. It's interesting that John sees both them and their thrones, which are symbols of authority. Second, those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And there's a number of references to this uh, back in chapter 6, 7, 12, and 13. This is usually interpreted a little more broadly, at least, to mean any form of martyrdom, right? Not just those who have been beheaded, but martyred in any way. It's interesting as well that John sees their souls, uh, is what the text tells us, does not see their bodies. So part of that uh, vision piece of this, that uh, you're trying to describe things that are indescribable. And the third group is those who had not worshipped the beast or received his mark. And again, I'd point you back to an older show. We talked about this in chapters 13 and 14 of Revelation, that chapter 13, receiving the mark of the beast, is uh, another reference for non-Christians. Receiving the mark of the lamb, the very next verse, chapter 14, verse 1, is a reference to Christians. So there's this basic choice in Revelation between receiving one mark or the other that's in the heart of chapters 13 and 14. The first mystery that pops up is the relationship between these three groups. Are they the same? Uh, Is A different than B and C? Is the first one different than the second two? For example, uh, the first reference has the authority to judge and the thrones. That sounds a lot like chapter 4, verse 4, the elders that were on thrones. So one interpretation of this is that A is separate from B and C, that A is a reference to uh, these elders on thrones from Revelation 4, and then the second two parts uh, are the same, trying to describe the same group of people, believers who had been martyred and had not worshipped the beast or received his mark. The complication in the Greek here is that all of these phrases are looped together with the word and. So translations take liberties based on their interpretation of the passage, but the Greek simply links all of them together, and then it's up to us to try and figure out what exactly that means. The other reason to separate uh, A from B and C is that A makes a reference to judging, whereas B and C, it reads like these people get to reign. And so judging and reigning are related, but they're not the same thing. Judging would be to discern. Reigning might be to render the judgment. And so people who make a big deal of that tend to see uh, the first group distinguished from the second two. The second question is how closely B and C are related. Are the martyrs being treated separately? Uh, Are they mentioned, given special mention because uh, it's a way to encourage, or are they treated specially uh, in this passage? Uh, beyond mere mention, do they get privileges that the other Christians don't get? Verse 5 is also colored by our interpretation here, right? Are we talking about uh, all the non-Christians coming to life at the end of time, uh, or is it all people except these martyrs? So it could be something special for this group of martyrs. There are no other verses that talk about that, so that doesn't cinch the deal, but it is at least interesting. I think a more uh, compelling argument against that view is that the authority to judge has been given to the disciples, and judging, reigning, and authority is promised repeatedly to all believers. So if this is meant only for uh, a special group of martyrs, then you have to reconcile that with the other passages with which promise the same thing to all believers. I think the other broad point to make here is that this is remarkably un- underdeveloped, that this is all meant to be taken literally. Uh, We've got this idea of a 
uh, a temporary millennial kingdom if we take a literal millennium view. And we're just not given a lot of clear detail what it's going to be like. So not that that's required, but if it's uh, such a big deal, you might expect to find more detail for a literal millennium and how that's going to play out. Another phrase at the end of verse 4 is a bit complicated. It says it came to life, they came to life, and it's connected with the first resurrection in verse 5. Well, that's a strange phrase as well if we take it too literally because we know that all believers are resurrected when they are born again. There's a number of verses that talk about that. And then there have also been a number of literal resurrections prior to this one. So this isn't literally the first resurrection. There were many before it. Uh, both figuratively in the lives of untold numbers of believers, and then also in the literal physical sense. You think about the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and the ministry of Christ, the ministries of Paul and Peter, and even the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Now, one could say, well, you know, yes, they were resurrected, but they died again. So it wasn't a permanent resurrection. So that's one way out of this to say that this is the first resurrection where everyone stays alive. The other is to read this in a in uh, more in the literary context of this, that there's going to be a lot of discussion in chapter uh, 20 about the the second resurrection at the White Throne Judgment at the end of this chapter, which will be accompanied by a second spiritual death. So you've got a first death that's physical, and then there's discussion about resurrection versus resurrection to be judged. And so it could just simply be that. that this This is two different ways to talk about Uh, resurrection for Christians, and then resurrection for non-Christians who will be judged at the end of this chapter. Verse 6 then gets us to the opportunities and blessings for these saints, uh, those in the first resurrection. First, they're labeled blessed and holy. Second, we're told the second death, which is identified as the lake of fire in chapter 20, verse 14, has no power over them. Again, this is true for all Christians. Barclay says physical death for Christians is not a thing to be feared, for it is the gateway to life everlasting. So the second death has no power over them. It has no power over any Christian. Uh, This may allude to martyrdom also, maybe an implicit encouragement uh, and a reminder to those dealing with persecution that the first death also has no power over them. Verse 6 says that they are priests of God in Christ. I love that the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which is where we get the idea of bridges. Uh, it means a bridge builder and a priest, and we're all called to be priests, right? Uh, we're, we're to build bridges between God and man. And then it mentions in verse 6 and also in verse 4, they will reign with Christ for a thousand years, and they're given authority to judge. So there's a reward for their present faithfulness. We're going to talk about rewards to believers uh, next week. Uh, and we've already talked about the millennium and the reigning and judging that occur in that, and we talked about that last week, so I'll leave that discussion for last week's show. Okay, so that parenthesis ends, verses 4 through 6, and then we return to the action from a narrative from verse 3, and we pick it up in, with verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So verses 2 and 3, Satan had been bound and imprisoned, but it had the cryptic reference at the end of 3 that he must be released, and that's what happens here. Satan returns to a former line of work 
what's mentioned in verses 3, 8, and 10, which is deceiving the nations. Interesting that it's not deceiving individuals, which of course is implied, but focusing on deceiving the nations. A couple of counterfeits here that are interesting. The one is that, you know, of course, Christ returns and here Satan returns. And it's not going to end so well for Satan uh, in just a few verses. Also interesting that this parallels Satan's work in Genesis 3. You have the perfect setup of Genesis 2. Satan shows up in Genesis 3 to ruin it. And it's kind of the idea here. You've got a, If you have a literal millennium, uh, Satan comes to mess it up. But this time again, it's not going to work. Uh, that counterfeit is also going to be uh, knocked out and perfectly resolved by uh, judgment, defeat, and ultimately heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, it's mentioned that he's released, but we know from other passages, and we talked about this last week, that he's not completely unrestrained. Uh, we, one, one angle here that people mention is that the chain of verses 1 and 2 is not mentioned here. And so some people take this to, meet, to be uh, literally or probably more figuratively that, yeah, he's out, but he's still chained. Right? The chain is not mentioned in this later passage. Verses 8 and 9 has the attack of Satan gathered multitudes against the camp of God's people, the city God loves. This latter phrase is, is uh, figurative for Jerusalem or perhaps the church. On that latter view, I would encourage you to read Zechariah 12 and 14, which includes the wonderful messianic reference in chapter 12, verse 10. But there's a lot of parallels there. The Satan led and gathered multitudes are described as sand, which is a parallel or a counterfeit of Genesis 22's population blessing of the same to Abraham. Sand also alludes to a physical or worldly force, and ultimately that it's going to reduce to dust. It's not going to be effective. In particular, Gog and Magog are identified. This is a reference back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Magog gets its start in Genesis 10, verse 2. And this refers to the ruler or prince and the people or land that were referenced in Ezekiel. They're both called a nation here, uh, but that seems to be a liberty that John and Christ are taking with this reference from Ezekiel. They're identified further here as the nations in the four corners of the earth. And so remember that four is a reference to natural and evil, and it's figurative for the whole world, which we saw back in chapter 7 verse 1. So bottom line, tons of worldly forces coming up against God and his, uh, his people. As impressive as they might seem or look, verse 9, they're rebuffed by fire from heaven, exactly like Ezekiel 38.22. Fire, of course, is figurative for all-consuming judgment, and this represents a very quick battle. To God, it's just that easy. As daunting as the battle looks, it's nothing to God. Again, to John's audience, this is so important, right? They've got emperor worship and persecution, and it seems like they're up against this powerful entity in Rome and the, the Jewish leaders, and yet to God, it's nothing. Then in verse 10, eternal judgment for Satan follows his utter defeat. This follows and finishes John 16, 11, where Christ said, the prince of this world now stands condemned. A reference to burning and stinky sulfur. We saw this back in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. It's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. It's also referenced in Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. 
There's eternal judgment for Satan, reminiscent of Isaiah 34.10. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. And that's Isaiah writing about Babylon. Okay, a few more things to say about this passage before we get to the next one, which is the the, uh, judgment of non-Christians. But before we do that, we need to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 20 today, and we just finished the guts of uh, verses 7 through 10, the details. And we have a few big picture things to say before we move to the next passage. The first thing is, when is this? How long does it last? and so on. There's no exact length of time given, but this reads like a fierce rebellion before quick defeat that has interrupted Christ's full-blown reign. If one reads the millennium as figurative as the church age, and that's the view of the post-millennials and the amillennials, again, we talked about this last week, uh, this would be everybody at the very end of time. And so there's a single battle, figurative or literal, and everything's put to rest after that. If you have a literal millennium, then this is a brief final time of terrible persecution at the end of Christ's premillennial reign. And it is amazing that Satan would have followers after all that time with Christ governing for a literal 1,000 years. But there are some explanations that are possible for this. It does beg the question, too, if it's literal, why does God allow this? Why must Satan reappear? Chapter 20, verse 3. Why, Why will he appear? Chapter 20, verse 7. One commentator says a temporary kingdom is a very curious concept. There is no obvious rationale for a temporary binding of Satan, the establishment of the reign of the saints, and then the undoing of all of this. And of course, one answer would be just to point to God's sovereignty and wave our hands and say, look, we don't understand God's ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are greater than ours, and we don't get it, uh, but that's just the way it is. And that is certainly plausible. But are there other potential explanations? And as you might imagine, the premillennials work hard at this because uh, this fits their interpretation. So they would say, yeah, there's lots of reasons, right? It would prove or test Christians, uh, and it would reveal the character of non-Christians one more time, including those who claim to follow. People still have free will. Maybe their loyalty had been based on material blessing or induced by fear. And so Satan coming one more time allows there to be a clear test of one's true allegiance. Premillennials also note that this, the reign of Christ having limited success, just points to the the utter strength of our sin nature and our eternal need for salvation. That once uh, the direct reign of Christ is taken away, that people will fall away quickly. And so it underlines our sin and our need for salvation. The other angle that's possible, I think, here is that this may be for Satan's potential repentance, as crazy as that seems. And if he's not going to repent, it shows that final, perfect justice and judgment are at hand when that happens in verse 10. If he's given one more chance, then you can't complain about the judgment that follows. If we go more figurative, I like what Shane Wood says here. If you, if you see the millennium and the finale as just another way to say that things are wrapped up, Wood says, John throws every symbol that he has into his account to comfort and assure his readers that no matter what, the victory is with God, and his people are to be faithful and valiant, assuring that their God will share his victory with them, and that in the end, there will only be be his kingdom of peace, righteousness, and love. All right, let's go to verses 11 through 15 
of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is often called the white throne judgment, and it's the judgment of non-Christians. We know that Christians are judged as well. One thing that comes up here is that is trying to decide, is it one judgment with two events? Is it two separate judgments? Is, is it a single judgment with two classes? It's not entirely clear. I'm going to treat them as, as distinct in some way. We'll talk about judgment of non-Christians today. We'll talk about judgment of Christians in uh, the next show. Uh, verses like Daniel 12 are helpful here. Verses 1 and 2. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes of sleep and the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Or from Jesus, John 5, 28 and 29, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Certainly reminiscent of Matthew 25, starting in verse 31 as well, which describes judgment in terms of the sheep and the goats. Now, only judgment of non-Christians is developed in Revelation. So we have to go other places to read about the judgment of Christians, but that's appropriate because what's the focus of Revelation, particularly this part of it, is talking about how things are going to wrap up with respect to defeating evil. So that's the focus of Revelation 20, that particular judgment. Now, the judge is described in verse 11. Uh, Great white throne symbolizes God's sovereignty and the perfect purity of his justice. And all of that's especially important for judging non-Christians given the sentence they're about to receive. Verse 11's reference to him is not totally clear. Usually God is on the throne, but Christ is often seen as a judge. For example, the passage in Matthew 25. We also have the unity of the Trinity here, right? We have uh, the judgment seat of both God and Christ described in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. So not a big deal. The the, the Trinity is in alignment here. Uh, Whatever entity or specific person of the Trinity happens to be doing the judging is not that important. Verse 11 has the divine presence or face, literally, as overwhelming, and the earth and sky fled from his presence. One thing that's interesting there, of course, is it sets up the new heavens and earth, right? If the if the old heavens and earth are fleeing, then that sets up the table for the appearance of the new heavens and earth in the next chapter. We saw the same language in chapter 16, verse 20, also reminiscent of 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So after describing the judge in verse 11, we're at the defendants in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says that all are judged, none are too great or small. Again, that's a theme we've seen a number of times in Revelation. Barclay says here, it is the judgment of the great and small. There is none so great 
as to escape the judgment of God, and none so unimportant as to fail to win his vindication. Verse 13 mentions the sea giving up its dead, and that could be literal for sailors who'd had uh, some lack of success on the ocean. But also it's more figurative, I think, for those who would seem to have been lost or to have hidden themselves effectively, right? If the sea is giving up its dead, again, everyone's going to get judged. Then verses 14 and 15, we have the verdict and sentence that death, Hades, and non-Christians are thrown into the lake of fire. On the first two of those, Barclay notes that these voracious monsters who have themselves devoured so many are in the end themselves destroyed. The lake of fire is identified as the second death. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 11 as well. Physical death is the first, and then the spiritual death is second. It's kind of funny and ironic that death is given the second death. And it's also appropriate that pursuing a path of death results in what is actually sought. Christians don't experience the second death, but Interestingly, interestingly, our death is supposed to be while we're on earth. We're supposed to die to self and die to the world. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Romans 12.1, we're living sacrifices. Galatians 5 and 6, we are to crucify Uh, the sin nature, and the world to ourselves. As Eugene Peterson puts it, we die 10,000 deaths before we are buried. So Christians don't die the second death referred to here, but we die every day in our pursuit of discipleship with Jesus. And of course, we have to read 1 Corinthians 15 here, don't we? Verse 26, the last enemy to to be defeated, destroyed, is death. And then down to verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gordon Fee says there is little doubt as to why these verses are read regularly at Christian funerals. Read without comment, it has its own power. But here, too, is a word for all seasons. Victory in the present begins when one can, with Paul, sing the taunt of death even now in light of Christ's resurrection. Where does this take us? The very next verse in 1 Corinthians, verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The last thing to talk about here is how is this sentence, how is guilt determined? And that's in verse 12, the books of works versus the book of life. Book of Life has received three earlier references in Revelation. We'll see it again in chapter 21, verse 27. The books of works are referenced in Daniel 7, verse 10. At the end of that verse, it says, The court was seated and the books were opened. The bottom line is you're acquitted if you're in the Book of Life. As Daniel 12, 1 puts it, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. There's other references, Luke 10, Verse 20 in Hebrews 12.23 talks about our names being written in heaven. And there are two interesting references to being written out of the book of life. Moses' passion in Exodus 32.32 for Israel, he wants to be blotted out of the book of life, uh, given the circumstances there. And then David wants his enemies to be blotted out. His passion in Psalm 69.28 uses a reference to the book of life. 
This verse also has one of my favorite little things in the Bible. Did you catch that there were books of works, plural, and book of life, singular? Two possible really cool explanations for this. One is the extent of the judgment. Books versus book may imply that many people are not going to be joining God in his kingdom for eternity. Relatively few will be saved. A second one, which is more uh, intriguing and creative, uh, is the idea that the books of works are so long, there's so many of them, because that's what's necessary to try to justify ourselves before a perfect and holy God, if we're depending on our works. So this would be like going to hell, or going to, to judgment, rather, and you start having to justify yourself. How many old ladies you helped across the street, how many banana breads you cooked, dot, dot, dot. Well, it would take volumes of books of works to try to justify yourself, and it still wouldn't work. Why is the book of life so short? Well, it's only a list of our names, or maybe it's even easier. Maybe it's just Jesus's name is the sole entry in that book, but that's a short book compared to the books of works. As such, verses 12 and 13 talk about judging the wicked by their works, what they had done, and of course, all are found wanting. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this implies incremental pain in hell and degrees of reward in heaven. So whether we embrace grace or not is the first condition, the first consideration. After that, all of us are judged by our works, non-Christians for degrees of punishment, Christians for degrees of reward. 1 Corinthians 3 is the classic passage on this. We'll talk about this next week. But there are many verses that talk about uh, being judged by works, good and bad, and for believers and non-believers. A few examples. Psalm 62, 12, you reward everyone according to what they have done. The end of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The classic passage in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind, to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Or as Peter writes believers in 1 Peter 1, 17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's works impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We will be judged by our words, our deeds, our thoughts, motives, the strength by which we do things. And as Barclay puts it, it's not so much that God judges a man as that a man writes his own judgment. And let's make sure that judgment is a good one. By walking faithfully with God, depending on him for his strength, uh, empowerment, inside of the spirit, and doing great things for his kingdom, walking in dependence on him. All right, we'll take a break here. On Facebook, please like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify. And please interact with me on Facebook. We'd love to see you there. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in our second week on Revelation 20, and we've actually wrapped up the uh, discussion of Revelation 20 itself, but we've also introduced uh, the idea of Hades and hell. And I want to spend the last two segments talking about other passages in Scripture and what they say about it. Now, one thing that we don't have time to do today, but we'll talk about next week, is there's a difference in the scriptures, apparently, between Hades and hell, and for that matter, paradise and heaven. But that's a topic for next week, so we'll get there later. But what we can say for now is that hell is a really unpleasant place, and we know that from the rest of scriptures, hell and Hades. Uh, it's a place of everlasting contempt from Daniel 12, 2. 
the weeping and gnashing of teeth are mentioned a number of times in the Gospels, whether that's a physical and or spiritual suffering. Gnashing teeth is a natural bodily expression of regret. And so it picks up that picture as well. It's darkness. Uh, Jude 13 calls it blackest darkness. Hell is separation from God. It is outside God's presence. And back to the metaphor of darkness, it is outside of his light. It's a picture of fear and isolation. You know, people here, as rough as life might get on earth, they have no sense of what hell would be like in this sense because no one has experienced anything close to full separation from God. Everyone has experienced common grace, the impact of God and his spirit on the world and through his people. We talk about hell on earth, but no one has experienced anything close to that. Take away God, take away his people, take away his spirit, and that's what hell would be like. The most popular picture, of course, is fire. There's an eternal or unquenchable fire. It's sometimes called a lake of burning sulfur. Uh, many, many references to that. Again, we'll talk more about this next week, uh, next the next show. There's also the passage in Luke 16, rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the NIV translates that as hell, but verse 23 is actually Hades. Uh, and there's torment, there's agony in this fire. Uh, but death, at least in Hades, does not destroy conscience, identity, or memory, uh, if we go by the parable in Luke 16. Again, uh, as per our discussion in the last segment, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And so that begs some questions. If we're going with these metaphors, are there different temperatures of fire? Is there a different amount of time in the fire? How can there be degrees of punishment in hell with these various metaphors? It's not clear how that works out exactly. So let's stay with the idea of eternal fire and see what the implications of that are. For one thing, we're told elsewhere in scripture that the eternal fire was built for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Similar to verse uh, 10 of chapter 20 that we just read today, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's interesting that in Revelation, when people are thrown into the lake of fire, no duration is mentioned, so, and certainly nothing about infinity. Chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 21.8, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, but there's no mention of duration. So we know that the punishment is eternal and final, but there is some debate over whether this constitute, constitutes eternal punishment or eternal punishing. Is there eternal torture for individuals, or is there a period of punishment followed by what's called annihilation, uh, where the soul is destroyed? And this is a view that is uh, a minority view, but I think the I think you'll agree with me here when I cover it that the scriptural backing for it is much stronger than you would have uh, guessed going into it. So if you'll be patient with me, I'll develop that with you here. And even if you don't find it compelling, uh, maybe it's something at least you can have in your apologetic tool bag. Many people uh, have trouble with aspects of hell, and if you can explain this possibility to them from the scriptures, uh, it may remove an unnecessary stumbling block. So what's the biblical basis for this view? I'm going to only read some of the verses because I could go on longer on this, but I've only got so much time. But let's look at the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 7, 13 
enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. So the Bible often speaks of destruction when one does not get into the kingdom. Maybe the most compelling verse is Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul talks about destruction four times. I'll just read one of those. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In particular, the Bible, Bible often implies finite punishment by speaking of the soul's death or perishing. We've seen a number of revel, uh, references in Revelation to a second death which seems to imply the death of the soul. Um, Ezekiel 18.4, the one who sins is the one who will die. Again, not speaking of earthly death there. Matthew 10.28, that I already read, is compelling on this. And how about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, that's not speaking of uh, earthly perishing, right? That's something else. That's the perishing of the soul. Third, we know that in Scripture, fire is used for destruction or refinement. And uh, refinement doesn't work here. That implies purgatory, and that doesn't work. Uh, But if fire means destruction, how does that work here? John Stott says it would be very odd if what is thrown into the fire proves indestructible. Or to ask it as a question, what kind of body would one have to burn for eternity? There are two big theological issues here as well. One is whether the soul is naturally immortal. And that view, uh, many think, was imported from the Greeks by the uh, early church. Or does immortality come with salvation? Scripture tends to imply the latter. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and 54, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Well, that's only true of Christians. 2 Timothy 1.10, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That immortality was not available without Christ. John 3.16, shall not perish but have eternal life. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Or the classic passage in Romans 6, verses 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we don't have eternal life without Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And in this understanding, hell is not the beginning of an immortal life in torment, but the end of a life led in rebellion against God. In any case, it's important to know that eternal life has already begun, at least for the Christian. The second big theological question is, is this more consistent with God's justice? perhaps theologically more palatable and consistent with God's character. Now, we can't 
decide this one dogmatically, right? Uh, people will disagree on this point, but one can make the argument that it, it is more consistent with God's justice. Part of this goes to how you think about hell in the first place. Is, is hell a matter of man choosing to separate himself from God and or the extent to which hell is God's punishment and vengeance on sin? If we're looking at the latter, then you have to wrestle with is eternal everlasting punishment, punishing, proportionate to the horrifying but finite sins we commit. So we know about the wrath of God towards sin, but is eternal punishing or eternal punishment more consistent with God taking vengeance and punishing those sins? So this is a complicated topic and one that is not, I think, uh, one that we should disagree over. I think you can agree with me that the scriptural basis for annihilationism is probably far stronger than you would have expected. I know it's far stronger than the first time I heard a case made for this. Uh, Good people can disagree on this. I think it does beg the question, why has this theory been uh, not nearly as popular as the traditional theory? I think one answer here is just the inertia of tradition, uh, that once a view gets going on a complicated topic especially, it's just hard to switch from that. Second, I think there's some people who kind of want there to be eternal punishing. Uh, Whether it's right or not, they kind of get a kick out of the idea of God's justice being that sort. And, of course, that's not good enough on our our views. We want our views to be accurate, not ones that are pleasing to us uh, in any part of our theology. The strongest legitimate practical concern is that it seems to take something away from evangelism, right? That if you reduce what hell is going to be, then it gives people less negative incentive to avoid hell. It's less of a stick. As an economist, I'm fond of talking about incentives, and I, you can't deny that. I mean, if you make hell worse, uh, if hell is worse, it drives people more to a solution for it. A couple of things to, to say, though, in, in contrast to this. One is that, of course, uh, hell of this sort is also a stumbling block to many people, and I think reasonably so. Again, good people can disagree on this, so there's the trade-off here in terms of evangelism. It's both driving people to a God who judges and away from a God who judges in a way that they find uh, deeply disturbing. Second, the incentive to respond to God in fear has other implications, right? It, it starts and maybe keeps the relationship with God based on fear. As Dallas Willard puts it, you know, we tend to reduce Christianity to fire insurance in that case. And as Willard asks, is the gospel just for dying or is it for living as well? And the answer is supposed to be living as well. But many people settle for uh, something that saves them from dying, from uh, fire insurance and and something driven out of fear. And if we leave it there, that's a, a horrible place to stop the gospel. And the third point is simply, I don't really care about any of that. Is it true? I mean, that's what we want to get to. And again, we can't solve that issue, but you know, our preferences, our, our thoughts about, you know, how does this help our evangelism? Uh, none of that really matters next to the the overarching question of what do the scriptures say, and as best as we can figure it out, what is truth on this topic? That's what we should work on. So hopefully this has been a useful and provocative discussion for you on that. We'll take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. All right, welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Revelation 20 today, and we spent the last two segments talking about uh, hell. Uh, the last segment, we talked about how horrible it is, and then we talked about the 
the uh, biblical theory of annihilationism. Uh, if you've not heard that before, it's provocative and probably much more compelling than maybe you would have thought. But uh, you'll have to catch the show later this week or on Spotify to catch the podcast of that. We're going to conclude with a bunch of uh, observations about hell to wrap up. So we can say with confidence that hell is a place and a state of suffering from being deprived of God's presence and something, of course, to be avoided and something that God has gone to great lengths to help us avoid through the sacrifice of Christ and through God's grace. It's interesting that hell is ignored for the most part by cults and uh, the heresy of universalism. When we get to something uncomfortable uh, or tense in our theology, a lot of times we just jettison it and get rid of it. And so we find that in uh, the heresies among various cults. As for our perceptions of hell, it's interesting that you know, the Bible emphasizes the separation from God. It also talks about fire combined with darkness. And it's kind of hard to imagine fire and darkness together, but if you go a mile deep in a lake or you go really deep in a fire, it's going to be super dark as well. And it's really hard to know which is worse, separation from God, which is more psychological, and fire, which is more physical. Peter Kreeft says, If there were literal physical fire in hell, it would not be so bad, for the physical pain would distract the damned from their greater spiritual interior torment as tearing out hair or batting our head against the wall distracts us from terrible misery, even in this world. It's interesting as well that if you go back a century or, or further, that hell was usually conceived in physical terms. And these days we think of it more in psychological terms, given where culture and economics have taken us. Thomas Reese said, if you had described hell to the, them in the, back in the day in terms of relationships and psychological experiences like loneliness, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about. So it's interesting to just consider how uh, the thought about hell has evolved over time. Our beliefs about hell are also a function of our personal circumstances. The poet Kathleen Norris observes, people who have endured the pain of exile and enslavement are likely to take refuge in the thought that there is punishment for their tormentors, if not in this world, then in the next. So if you're going through persecution and difficulty, uh, it's a lot easier to imagine where you'd get excited about punishment for those who have tormented you. On the other side of the coin, I think sometimes we diminish hell because we have a hard time accepting the truth that when family and friends die uh, and we don't think they've accepted Christ and accepted God's grace, it's really uncomfortable to think about them being in hell. I remember my um, grandmother uh, on my dad's side uh, would struggle with this, and it was really sad because it, it had connections to her doubts about her own salvation. Once we undermine our view of hell, uh, we start to inevitably uh, undermine belief in our own salvation. And so it's understandable. Uh, it is a difficult truth, but it is a truth from the scriptures. And our beliefs about hell also go to our personal kind of big picture theology. Are heaven and hell more about gaining and missing out on good things, or are they more about getting and avoiding uh, bad things? And of course, it's some of each, but if our weight is on the greatness and goodness of God, then we're going to tend to see hell as more about missing out on that greatness and goodness. If we don't think we're getting a lot of great or good stuff from God, then you know hell has to be more likely conceived as punishment, right? So again, back to carrots and sticks. 
I want to close with a fairly long discussion on a really important question here. The, the idea that a loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. The first consideration is that it vastly underrates, underestimates the extent of our sin and God's wrath towards sin. God is a God of love. He is not love per se without working in justice and judgment. God is in the rescuing business and he's provided a solution. But if we refuse that, it results in wrath toward us and our sin. If the gospel is good news, it's good news because it starts with bad news. And so don't overestimate uh, the bad news, but don't underestimate it either, right? If you underestimate it, you're not going to understand the good news and you're going to miss God's wrath towards sin. Related to that, we have to worship and understand God as he is rather than how we want him to be. You know, we think about Christ as the gentle teacher, but he has many, many references to hell and many more references to hell than heaven. Vance Habner uh, shares a story about pastoring a country church where a farmer didn't like the sermons where he preached on hell. The farmer said, preach the meek and lowly Jesus, and Habner said, that's where I got my information. Third, try to imagine salvation by another way, by works. That's even more exclusive. Uh, Where's the cutoff? Ah, I just barely missed it. Is that fair? I get hell because I barely missed the cutoff? There's just no way to imagine a system by works that's more just. It's grace or works, and works doesn't make any sense. Grace is not more just. As Tim Keller puts it, the universal religion of humankind is we develop a good record and give it to God, and then he owes us. The gospel is God develops a good record and gives it to us, then we owe him. Well, maybe God should just let everybody in. Well, no, a just God must provide a just way to atone for sin. Can you imagine the conclusion of the world without justice? Becky Pippert says a wrathless God cannot be a loving God. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is subtle opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God sent people to tell you. He wrote you a big old love letter. He tried to get your attention through events. He died to save you. What else, what more could he do? It's not justice without judgment. Fifth, and related to that point, I think we vastly underestimate the perfection of God's perfect justice and judgment, which must be assumed by faith. I love what Kathleen Norris says here. She could not see how the God who is described in the New Testament as love itself could also be the God of the last judgment, rendering punishment so harsh as to seem pathologically cruel. Then a troubling question occurred to her, how could I be more compassionate than God? The woods are full of people, theologians among them, who are only too happy to tell you that they are indeed more compassionate than God, citing Bible verse after Bible verse to prove that God is simply not as nice as they are. And I love Norris's quote because it just gets to the absurdity of that position. And finally, sixth, and I think the largest point, God doesn't send anyone to hell. They go by choice. God respects our free will and allows us that dignity. The lake of fire is not prepared for people, but for Satan and his angels. We read that in Matthew 25, 41. But people are going to decide to follow Satan and his angels and go there. That's up to them. Hell is not a threat. It's a warning out of God's love. A bunch of great quotes here. Pope John Paul II said, Hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God, as much as a natural consequence of the unrepentant sinner's choice to live apart from God. Dorothy Sayers, evil is the soul's choice of the not God. The corollary is that damnation or hell is the permanent choice of the not God. Dallas Willard, I'm thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. 
I think if you, what I like about the Willard quote is that, you know, heaven would probably be hell for non-Christians. They don't want to be with God and his people. Why would they want an eternity of that? And so God grants them their wish. Tim Keller, when sin is seen as chosen slavery and hell is the freely chosen eternal skid row of the universe, hell becomes much more comprehensive. G.K. Chesterton, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. The most helpful author for me on this topic, though, has been C.S. Lewis. Screwtape Letters, he talks about the two choices, thy will be done or thy will be done, right? We either say that to God or God says it to us. Or the book, The Great Divorce, nice little hundred page, fairly easy read from C.S. Lewis, uh, is story after story where people are depicted as choosing uh, not God. And then this quote from Lewis in The Problem of Pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's already done that on Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. The bottom line is that people choose. We've seen free will since Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have a choice. God doesn't build an electric fence around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't destroy the tree. It's there. It, it depicts choice, the decision to follow God or to disobey, the choice to want to be in God's presence or not. And that choice extends to us today. And that's why that's the most powerful apologetic on this topic is that people choose God doesn't send per se. He's just honoring what they want. They don't want to be with him for eternity. They don't want to be with his people. That's up to them, all right? Perfect justice, per perfect judgment. God has done everything humanly, divinely conceivable to make that relationship right, despite our remarkable sin. And to complain about that, to complain about his justice is just ridiculous. This life on earth is the only hell we're going to know as Christians and it's the only heaven that non-Christians will know. Philip Schaff says, Without Christ, life is as the twilight with dark night ahead. With Christ, it is the dawn of morning with the light and warmth of a full day ahead. Lord, we thank you for heaven. We thank you for Christ coming to give us uh, eternal life in you. We pray to focus on that, that we would live lives that bring you honor and glory. And part of that, Lord, is to show others the way that our lives would be a reflection of your glory, that they would attract people to your kingdom. Lord, we pray for those who are not currently comfortable in the goodness of your kingdom, Lord, that we would make a difference in their lives, that they would ex uh, uh, embrace grace, Lord, and that they would uh, avoid the fires of hell, that they would avoid uh, an eternal punishment, Lord, and that they would enjoy uh, being ravished by your love and your grace on earth and then in heaven. Lord, we thank you that eternal life has already begun for us believers. We pray that we would live like it in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been great to be with you today to talk through this uh, these complicated and awesome topics. Uh, if you've catched this show uh, later this week or previous shows, podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify. Meet me on Facebook there and ask your questions, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. <laughs>